Well, this morning we have this privilege of opening the Word of God together, the privilege of hearing from God through His Word, and we're going to spend our time in the book of Revelation so you can begin making your way there. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, so maybe you can start in the back and work forward. We're going to be in chapter 1. And we're going to stand in just a few moments and read this passage of Scripture together. But before we do, it's necessary to make a few comments about the book of Revelation as a whole. First, this book can be intimidating. After all, it's full of of bizarre images and, and strange figures. There are beasts and dragons and demons and angels and earthquakes, cosmic disturbances, the likes of which... We've never seen. And in addition to that, there's, there's the controversy surrounding the method of interpretation for this book. And so sometimes what happens is, is when we look at all of these things, our response is to, to set the book aside. But I would suggest that this morning there, there's a better response, and it's, it's to look at the book of Revelation. And if we stand back and, and take a look at what this book teaches us as a whole, the message is really very simple, and it's this. Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, is going to return to the earth as the conquering king. And he's going to execute judgment on all people. And he's going to usher in, he's going to bring in the eternal state. The wicked are going to be punished, and the righteous are going to forever be in the presence of the Lord. The book of Revelation puts the sovereignty of God on display. The Apostle John wrote this book while he was exiled on this island called Patmos. And and we learn in chapter 1 that he was put there because of his faithfulness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so under the inspiration of the Spirit, John pens this letter to seven churches. Seven churches in Asia, and, and today we call that region Turkey. And, and, his, and his purpose in doing so was at least twofold. First, he was to shake these believers from their spiritual lethargy. You see, some of them had fallen asleep. And so John writes to wake them up. And second, he wants to encourage the believers to persevere in the midst of suffering and persecution. These believers were being pressured to compromise their faith and their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. The temptation for them, like it is for us, the temptation for them was to live like the rest of the world, bowing their knee to the emperor and living in sensuality. So the believers in John's day needed to be reminded of who God is. In the midst of difficulty and suffering, those believers were at risk of failing to remember who God had revealed himself to be and were not unlike those first century Christians. Because of the fall back in the garden, we're born with a sin nature. It's like, it's like we're, we're wearing really muddy glasses and, and we can't quite see things for what they truly are. And this, the fall affects our understanding of who God is. We, we tend to conceive of God in our fallenness. We tend to conceive of God either over here as a, as a cosmic teddy bear or, or on this spectrum, end of the spectrum, 
a cosmic tyrant, both of which are unbiblical. And so we ask ourselves, what will correct our thinking? How are we to have a biblical understanding of who God is? And in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, we're given a glorious description of God. If we are to persevere in this life in the midst of adversity and suffering and persecution, we must have a biblical understanding of God. So I would invite you, if you can stand now, we're going to read together. From Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read all the way through verse 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the scripture. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the scripture. So we pray that you would give us minds and hearts to understand this morning, that our understanding of you would be accurate, it would be true. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Before I read, I said that if we were to persevere in this life in the midst of adversity and suffering and persecution, we must have a biblical understanding of God. In these first few verses in the book of Revelation, we see right off that that this book is, is from Jesus and it's about Jesus. We learn that Jesus is coming soon and and those who read and hear and obey this book will be blessed. We also see that uh, who the recipients are of this letter. this, This letter was written to the seven churches in Asia. But the message of this book is not confined to those believers only. Rather, it's this this message is applicable to all churches at all times, and that includes us today. As we seek to develop a biblical understanding of who God is, we first learn that we should trust in the triune God because he is gracious and he rules over the world. We should trust in the triune God because he's gracious and he rules over the world. Verse 4 says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. 
This is a familiar New Testament greeting. Most of the New Testament letters begin with words just like this. Grace to you and peace. And, and, and it's possible that we become so accustomed to these, to these greetings that we miss the significance. So let's take just a few moments and, and unpack what is contained in these words, grace and peace. We think about grace, just very simply stated, grace is undeserved favor. We've sinned against God. We deserve his wrath, but God in, in Christ shows us great mercy. His, his, his grace is most clearly seen in the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem us from the curse, curse of sin. God has revealed himself to be a God of grace throughout all of Scripture. If we go back to the book of Genesis, and we read about the fall, and right in chapter 3 we read these words, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a promise of a coming Messiah. And in this, we see the grace of God on display. So from Genesis to Revelation, God reveals himself to be a God of grace. Several weeks ago, Pastor Daniel was preaching through Exodus. And we came to chapter 34, and we learned something in verse 6 about God. Exodus 34, verse 6, says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. So John writes to those suffering persecution for the name of Christ and to those who are persevering in the midst of turmoil, God says, grace to you. Not only grace, but peace. You know, when we think of peace, we often think the absence of chaos. We think of the sun going down, the sun setting over a peaceful lake, the absence of fear. And certainly those are elements of peace, but when the Bible speaks of peace, there's something more there. For those who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone, peace with God is a settled reality. Paul wrote in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. No longer is God angry Not only grace, but peace. So we see the book of Revelation beginning with this standard greeting, grace to you and peace. And as the text unfolds, we see that grace and peace come from the triune God. The triune God, the one who is gracious and who rules over the world. God is revealing himself to us, who he is, and he begins by describing himself in verse 4 as the one who is and who was and who is to come. The Apostle John draws from the Old Testament here as he does repeatedly throughout the book of Revelation. Again and again, he's drawing from the Old Testament, from these scriptures, and he's, and he's bringing them forward and making application for us. The background to this reference is Exodus 3 and verse 14. There God had appeared before Moses in the burning bush and he had, he had summoned Moses to go to Pharaoh because God had heard the cry of his people, Israel. And he said, I'm going to come down and I'm going to release my people from this oppressor. And Moses, I want you to go and tell my people what I'm going to do. And so Moses says to God in verse 13, 
If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so here we see this I am equated with the one who is. And this this mysterious title teaches us that God is eternal. God is saying to us, I have no beginning and I have no end. John continues then, and who was and who is to come. So that we see the eternal nature of God. God is before all time. God is not bound by time. A concept which is, is largely inconceivable to us because we know nothing except that which is bound by time. So we see God the Father as the one who offers grace and peace. But it's not the Father only. It's the Spirit as well. Verse 4 continues, And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, this is a way to speak of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Scripture, numbers are significant. Numbers are important. And particularly in in the book of Revelation. Oftentimes the number seven is used to speak of completion or perfection. And, and this number seven is used repeatedly throughout Revelation. We, we see seven blessings and seven angels, seven churches, seven lampstands, seven thunders, and seven plagues, seven hills, seven kings, seven stars and seals and trumpets and bowls. And it seems here uh, the seven spirits are, are referring to the perfect work of the Spirit to bring grace and peace to the believer. From him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits and then from Jesus Christ. Here we have the triune God. Grace and peace from God. The triune God, the one who rules over the world. Remember, John is writing to believers who, like us, were prone to forget who God is, especially in the face of difficulty. And so we ask ourselves, what what do we learn about Jesus here? It's as if John is saying, grace to you and peace from Jesus, and let me tell you about him. First, he's the faithful witness. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. In John's Gospel, chapter 3, and verse 32, it says, He, that is Jesus, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Later on in the book, in John 18, Jesus is before Pilate. And in verse 37, it says, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, here it is, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So, so to bear witness to something is to say, this, this is truth. But for Christ, it was to say, look at me. I am the truth. Jesus is the faithful witness. He was faithful to the point of death. 
Robert Mounts, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, writes this about this particular verse. He says, To the Asian Christians about to enter into a time of persecution, Jesus is presented as the faithful witness. He is the model of how to stand firm and never compromise the truth of God. Not only is Jesus the faithful witness, but he's the firstborn from the dead. Jesus Christ is the firstborn, the first fruits. His, his resurrection in a glorified body was the first fruits of what was to come. In the same way that Christ was resurrected from the dead, so every believer will be resurrected and we're going to be fitted with a glorified body. This time of year is significant for Christians as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then we are still in our sins and our faith is worthless. But Christ has been raised from the dead. And we too will be raised from the dead. The realization that, that this is true for us, that one day we will be raised from the dead and, and given glorified bodies should encourage our hearts as it no doubt encouraged those who were in the face of persecution in the first century. We know that this life is temporal, but so often we forget. So being reminded of this is, is necessary. Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the prototype. And he's the ruler of kings on the earth. Jesus Christ is the ruler of kings on the earth. Throughout the book of Revelation, the, the city of Babylon is, is used to depict the world's wicked system. The world's wicked system. If you would, turn with me in Revelation to, the, to chapter 18. And in chapter 18, we read about the fall of this world system called Babylon. In verse 1, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So we see the kings of the earth, those wicked rulers, those evil emperors, they're united to this evil system called Babylon. And what we learn is that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to topple this evil empire and he's going to destroy wickedness. John wants the believers to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is king on the earth. This would have been comforting to those first century Christians. They needed to be reminded that God was and still is on his throne and that nothing is occurring apart from his sovereign rule and permission. So we've seen this greeting from the triune God, grace to you, and peace from the one who rules over all things. 
The one who is eternal and unchangeable. The one about whom Isaiah writes saying, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. We should trust in our triune God who only does things with perfection. We should trust in our God who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of kings on the earth. We remember he's gracious. He's gracious and he's ruling over the world. We look around us and it seems the world is in chaos and yet, and yet the events of the world are unfolding according to plan. The perfect plan of our perfect God, and we should trust in him. As we seek to further develop a biblical understanding of God, we learn in verses 5 and 6 that we should give glory to Jesus because he secures our salvation. We should give glory glory to Jesus because he secures our salvation. Before we get to what God has done through Jesus Christ, we learn, first of all, that he loves us. To him who loves us. John includes himself here. He's writing to those seven churches in Asia. Presumably, most of them were Christians. They were either in the midst of tribulation or they were getting ready to enter a time of severe persecution. And it's to these believers that John writes, To him who loves us. Present tense. Jesus keeps on loving you. As we think about this, I can't help but think about Romans 8. Romans 8 and verse 31, which says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We sing this song and we teach it to our kids. Jesus loves me, this I know. Then what? For the Bible tells me so. We see the truth of that song here in Revelation chapter 1. And yet we struggle to believe it. In the midst of your cancer, Jesus loves you. In the midst of your struggle to parent your teenager. In the midst of that recent job loss. In the midst of your loneliness. Jesus loves you. In the midst of your anxiety and your fear. In the midst of that untimely death of a loved one. The word of God says, Jesus loves you. In fact, his love is so great for his people that he has died in our place. And in so doing, he has freed us from our sins by his blood. The end of verse 5. Jesus loves us presently. And he has freed us. Completed action. It's finished. This could be translated, 
who loosed us, who released us. I like that because because it accurately describes the biblical picture of the bondage that we were in before Jesus set us free. For example, in Titus chapter 3, Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is the condition that marked every believer before being set free, before being loosed, before being released by the blood of Christ. If you're not trusting, if you're not trusting in Christ alone as Savior, you're still bound by your sin. You're a slave to the passions of the flesh. The end of which is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire, we read in the book of Revelation. We have good news. Jesus died to save sinners like me and like you, and Jesus came to redeem us, to purchase us, to reconcile us, to bring us back into a right relationship with the Father. And so if you're not united with Christ by faith this morning, I plead with you, repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin and put your faith in the one who died to pay the penalty for our sin. So we give glory to Jesus because he loves us and he has freed us from our sins. And and not only that, but he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To be a kingdom is to be united with the king, that is Jesus, and to share with his reign, in his reign. In Revelation chapter 5, the question, who is worthy to take the scroll and open it, is answered. Who is worthy to take this scroll and to break the seals and open it and to reveal the things that are going to happen? Answer, Jesus, the lamb who was slain. And in verse 9 it says, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We're going to reign with Jesus. We're going to reign as a kingdom of priests. Under the old covenant, priests were to mediate between God and the people, Israel. They offered sacrifices to God. They offered worship to God. And again, John is picking up on this Old Testament language. Language that was spoken to the people of Israel. And John is picking it up and he's applying it to the church. And in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5, God said through Moses to his people Israel, he said, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
Israel was to mediate the truths of God to the world. Israel was to worship God and and proclaim the excellencies of God so that the world would look and know, they would see that there is one God. But Israel failed to do this. As we read through the Old Testament, we see this failure after failure after failure, and thus is revealed the need for the perfect priest. The perfect priest we heard about last Sunday. Jesus. It is through Jesus Christ then that we have been made a kingdom of priests. Priests to God. And as as priests, we've been granted access to God. We can now, because of what Christ has done, we can come to the throne room of God. We, the church, we are priests. And just like Israel, we are to mediate, that is, we're to take God's truth and and tell. We're to go tell others about Jesus and what he has done. In verse 6, then, we see that glory is ascribed to Jesus at the end of verse 6, and this should be our response as well. We're reminded that we should give glory to Jesus because he secures our salvation. And so we ask the question, well, how do we do this? How do we give glory to Jesus? Well, we begin by believing the gospel. The gospel, we believe the gospel in order to be saved. But that's not all. As followers of Christ, we we are to be believing the gospel day after day after day. We believe that We're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And we believe that we have a Savior who is interceding on our behalf presently. And we trust Him. We believe the gospel. And then we live in light of the reality that we've been changed. We've been born again. We've been given new minds and hearts. And so this radical transformation that takes place when we were born again, this radical transformation is manifested through radical obedience. We give glory to Jesus by obeying his word. Our understanding of God must be biblical if we are to persevere. And our great God has revealed himself to us in this passage by declaring that he's gracious and that he rules over the world and that he secures our salvation. And third, we see that he's coming again. We should submit to Jesus as Lord because he's coming again. Look with me at verse 7. Behold. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Behold is an attention getter. It's as if John is putting his hands to his mouth and he's saying, listen up. I have something to tell you. This this Jesus Christ that I've been proclaiming to you, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of kings on the earth, the one who loves us, 
presently, the one who has freed us from our sins by his blood, the one to whom glory and dominion belong, I want to tell you something, he's coming. Again, John draws from the Old Testament, Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12, and he blends these two passages together to tell us something about the coming of Jesus. To say that Jesus is coming with the clouds is to say that he's coming in great glory. One writer says, to the Hebrew, cloud imagery would conjure up in the mind divinity. We see in Exodus 13, 21, it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. Exodus 16, 10, And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. We can move to the New Testament, to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 17 and verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, And when they had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. To say that Jesus is coming with the clouds tells of his glorious return in power. John places this imagery then of Jesus coming with the clouds right next to this reference to Zechariah 12.10 which says, When they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. And in Zechariah, this, this reference is, is speaking about those who would, who would mourn in repentance. But that's not what's going on here in Revelation. Those who mourn here will be, they, 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 will, they will mourn in such a way that expresses great sorrow and lament and anguish because the time for repentance will have passed. When Jesus returns, it will have been, it will be too late. And throughout the book of Revelation, we see these terrible judgments that fall upon the unbelieving world. And we're absolutely amazed. Why? We're amazed because as these judgments are poured out, the people do not repent. In chapter 9, we read of the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments. And in these judgments, demonic locusts are released from the abyss and they're, they're allowed to torment people. For a time. And then 200 million cavalrymen are summoned and they, and they wipe out a third of the earth. And so we think, well, certainly in the face of these kinds of horrific judgments, certainly the people would repent. But that's not what we see. In chapter 9 and verse 20, it says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And then we read of the bold judgments, the most intense 
judgments. In chapter 16 and verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Lest we think that the human heart is mostly good, bent on seeking God, the scripture says something radically different. All tribes of the world, the nations, they will mourn for him whom they have pierced. So what do we do with this? We should submit to him as Lord because he's coming again. If you aren't trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord this morning, please hear me. You're not ready for his return. You're not prepared to meet him. And the scripture says he's coming again to judge the world. We must be prepared, so repent. Repent and believe the gospel. For those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, for those of us who are known by him, We don't need to fear his return. In fact, we can wait with eager anticipation for our Lord to return. Be comforted by the words of this chapter, verse 17 of chapter 1. It says, when I saw him, here's John writing, says, when I saw him, that is Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. A fitting response to the glorified Son of Man. John falls on his face. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. Fear not. I am the first and the last. And the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. We should submit to Jesus as Lord because he's coming again. So in Revelation chapter 1, we've seen that we've been, given, we've been given a biblical description of God. And we've seen that God is gracious and that he rules over the world. And we've seen that he secures our salvation. And we've been reminded that he's coming again. And finally, in our quest to further develop a biblical understanding of God, we learn that we should worship God because he's almighty. We should worship God because he is the almighty This section comes to a close with these words, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. This is a way to say that God is the beginning and the end and everything in between. God has ordered the events of history from creation to consummation, from Genesis to Revelation, from eternity to to eternity. We then see the same phrase as we read back in verse 4, him who is and who was and who is to come. This speaks of the absolute eternality of God and his providence over all things. 
God is presently ruling over the world. Certainly those first century Christians needed to be reminded that the triune God is is seated on his throne ruling over the world. We learn that the emperor in their day, Domitian, he, he, he required that people would ascribe to him the title Lord and God. John wants the believers to know him who is and was and is to come. God is ruling over the world. So a biblical understanding of God includes the recognition that, that God is presently on his throne. As we read the headlines, we need to be reminded of this. John then adds, the Almighty. He's the omnipotent one who rules over all. And what follows in the book of Revelation is the the description of God's triumph over all forces of evil and his ushering in of the eternal state. To say that God is almighty is to affirm his sovereignty over all things. Nothing can thwart his plans. If you're a child of God, this, this this should soothe our souls. Understanding that we serve the king. The events of history are moving steadily toward the ultimate consummation of God's perfect plan and nothing can stop it. We should worship God because he's the Almighty. When we began, we said that because we live in a fallen world, our our understanding, our perception of God is flawed. And because of this, we're dependent upon the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to set our minds aright, to correct our thinking so that it's aligned with a biblical depiction of who God is. And so we've seen from from Revelation chapter 1 and verses 4 through 8, we've learned that we should trust in the triune God because He's gracious and He's ruling over the world. We who are fearful and are weak, whose health is declining, We who who are are being forced to take a stand for truth in school and at work, we must trust God. We learn that we should give glory to Jesus because he secures our salvation. And we said we give glory to Jesus by believing the gospel and by walking in obedience to his word. Third, we, we should submit to Jesus as Lord because he's coming again. We must be ready to meet him. And finally, we should worship God because he's the Almighty. John wrote this letter to the seven churches. These believers were undergoing intense persecution and needed to be reminded of who God is in the midst of their suffering. And we're just like them. We too must be reminded of who it is that we serve Life in a fallen world means adversity. Often we forget that the God who called us to himself is sovereignly ruling over the entire creation. He's orchestrating the events of history according to his perfect plans. And that includes every detail of our lives. A biblical understanding of our great God enables us to persevere in this life through adversity and suffering, and persecution. And by God's grace, we may boldly proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ until his glorious return. May God make us 
faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we magnify the name of Christ because it is in Christ that we have hope. We have redemption. And so I pray that in this new week we would trust in you, the one who rules over all. May you be glorified in our lives. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.